Hey, I'm Gabriela Losada, and this is Psych 401. We'll be talking about different facets of psychology and also mental illness. On this episode, we're going to talk about psychics and ghosts and other creepy fun stuff. I am extremely into Halloween, and even that is probably a bit of an understatement, but typically around the beginning of August, I start to binge watch horror movies and figure out what I'm going to be doing in the fall as far as pumpkin picking and parties. But all of that actually started a little bit earlier this year because at the end of May, I got a really great opportunity to help plan a paranormal psychology class at my university. And this class didn't exist before, so the groundwork wasn't laid for what it entailed. I was wanting to take the class as a student, but the person, the professor teaching the class is someone that I do research with, and then is also somebody who I've been a teaching assistant for in the past. So I emailed him as soon as I found out the class filled up and asked him if he by any chance needed a teaching assistant. So whenever we had a meeting about it, he explained to me that he didn't really know the direction that he wanted the class to go in. So he was very open to suggestions and I got to be creative with it and kind of run free with the different aspects of the subject that I wanted to do research about. So I In the end, I didn't actually end up being able to be there for the class because I was going on vacation that same time frame, but I put a lot of time and effort into this research and became really interested in all of the aspects of it. But I did still get to do a lot of research and lend a hand in the curriculum for that class, which was really great. Um, Parapsychology is an actual field within psychology and these people kind of go through and investigate the claims of clairvoyance and people who claim to be telekinetic and they don't necessarily seek to disprove them but they just hunt for validity in their claims. These parapsychologists investigate things that have paranormal undertones to them. So there's actually one parapsychologist who studies people who believe in Bigfoot and aliens and he doesn't study Bigfoot or aliens themselves, he comes at it from an anthropological perspective. And he looks into why these people believe these things and comes up with a lot of statistics on their backgrounds. I'm actually not going to talk about Bigfoot or aliens or anything today, though, because for whatever reason, those particular facets don't interest me. But I am going to talk about ghosts. So with all of this, I don't seek to disprove or invalidate anything that you've experienced. This is just the evidence that I've found that has been studied throughout time in a psychological manner. There is the West Virginia State Penitentiary, which I have a very hard time pronouncing. Um, it's a really beautiful building, but it's really ominous. It's in it's architecturally gothic, and it's not in operation as a prison anymore. They do, however, still hold regular tours and have haunted houses during the fall and have a lot of events there throughout the year. And they also offer midnight sessions for people to stay the night there and investigate. And I think this is mostly for um, people who have like those ghost hunting TV shows, but I'm pretty sure it's also open to the public. So it's a pretty morbid concept to walk around this prison that a lot of really awful things happened in and bring ghost stories out of it. But they have to hype it up somehow. And the thinking behind it is that The reason why some of these things 
and these rumors and kind of legends have originated is because, but they have to keep funding in place somehow to keep it from being torn down. So a lot of tourists come in for their various events. So the rumored ghosts are actually money-making machines. And if you think about how much tourism is created by hauntings, just by looking at places like New Orleans, they rake in so much money every year just for tourists coming to explore the haunted history or do the ghost tours. That city is a hotbed of history and so many people go there because it's supposedly haunted. There are a handful of scientific explanations for why somebody might feel like their house is haunted. One of those things is carbon monoxide poisoning. So it's actually more common than most people think, but a lot of the times there is a very large carbon monoxide leak, like if somebody leaves their car running in the garage and it ends up being causing the death of the whole family. But there are also slow leaks. So whenever these happen, you feel a really large pressure on your chest. You have auditory hallucinations, which are terrifying in and of themselves. And then you have this unexplained feeling of dread. I actually had a similar experience where I was exposed to a slow leak from a propane tank. And I didn't have the auditory and visual hallucinations, but I did get incredibly sick and had this feeling of dread kind of weighing over my head that I couldn't put my finger on. And it's not exactly the same as carbon monoxide poisoning, but it does have a lot of similar effects on people who are exposed to it. There was also this theory by a cognitive neuroscientist that electromagnetic fields can cause hallucinations. And then these hallucinations could be seen as a ghostly presence, which is why some of those ghost hunters carry around those, um, those EMF detectors. But several scientists have gone up against this because while these frequencies can be created in a lab pretty easily, it's not likely that these fields would be strong enough out in the real world to have the same effect. There's also the idea that exposure to infrasound below 20 hertz can cause symptoms. So some of these feelings include dread, feeling of presence, cold shivers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this sound is so low that it's inaudible to humans, but it still has effects. An engineer named Vic Tandy conducted an investigation after he was feeling something weird in his lab. So in the 1980s, he started an, an investigation um, and as it turned out, he had a metal fan that was broken and it was creating the sound at 19 hertz. And that was the, the cause for his uneasiness. There was also a controlled experiment done by Professor Richard Wiseman and his team in 2003. They did an experiment where they exposed about 700 people to music and a concert-like atmosphere. And they embedded 17 hertz sound waves into the songs. And 22% of the participants, which is considered a significant number, who listened to the music reported feeling uneasy or got chills down their spines or felt really afraid. And then at 18 hertz, the sound can resonate the human eyeball, causing vibration. And so this could be a potential explanation for, um, for seeing a figure out of the corner of your eye because sound at this level causes hallucinations. There's also this idea that certain types of mold can cause potentially hallucinogenic effects. Um, I think there's one called ergot, if I'm pronouncing it right, and it can be in many people's homes without them even knowing it, but exposure over a long period of time could cause these type of symptoms that might make them think their home is haunted. People who experience hauntings and people who have been exposed to mold within their homes have reported the same type of symptoms. 
There's also grief. Belief in ghosts is a huge comfort to people who have lost a loved one. And if believing in ghosts is going to help you with your grieving process, then more power to you. According to the neurologist Oliver Sacks, who wrote Hallucinations, he said that 60% of people who have lost a loved one claim to see a ghost. And then seeing the face of a deceased loved one can help you cope. So a comforting hallucination can be part of that grieving process and help you move on. And it turns out being creeped out is evolutionary. So back in the Stone Ages, people had to constantly be on guard because there were so many threats and they also needed to adjust and fit in with a group. So if they reacted to every single ambiguous thing with fear, chances are they would be exiled. So feeling creeped out was this great middle ground to test out any sort of fearful curiosity. And if they noticed that other people in their group were feeling the same type of tension, then that would probably be cause for fear and alarm. So in 2012, there were researchers in the Netherlands who found that when subjects felt creeped out, they felt colder and then believed the temperature in the room had actually dropped. So the brain is pretty powerful. We have a both a physical and a mental reaction to fear. And the physiological aspects can include a rush of blood, which makes someone feel cold and then hypervigilant. And then they start to notice really tiny things like voices or footsteps because of it. And then fear is an emotion that keeps us alive. Um, it signals to your body to act. So when you're afraid of something, your blood pressure goes up, you start sweating, and then to save energy, your, digest your digestion is delayed because the human body is really cool. Um, so if you have to act quickly, all of these physiological things help you to do so. Things like this are the reasons why haunted houses keep it really dark um, and then sometimes have a lot of really loud ambient music or flashing lights or things that kind of jar your senses. And then this is so your brain can't get as much information about the other things surrounding you. And then they get a, a bigger scare whenever someone comes to jump out at you and scream in your face. And they play off of things that people are naturally afraid of, so then it heightens the whole situation, and they make a lot of money off of it. People can control fear in a number of ways. So there's avoiding, which is actually the most common. Um, there's confronting, so people do this in the form of going to a haunted house, which gives them a safe place to do that where they know nothing bad is actually going to happen. Um, and then there are some types of exposure or extinction therapy that might utilize this because if somebody has a fear of clowns that is so strong that they can't function day to day, they might take them to a haunted house to try and gradually expose them to this stimuli and help them conquer this fear. And exposure therapy in and of itself is really interesting and not something I could ever do. For example, I'm really afraid of lifelike mannequins, which can probably be attributed to the uncanny valley phenomena, but I don't think I could sit in a room full of them in order to get over that fear because it's not really that important to me. Then again, it doesn't affect my day-to-day -day life in a debilitating way, and it, some people's fears do that, so it is necessary for them. It's just not something I think would be very effective for me. And for those of you who don't know, the uncanny valley effect or the concept of it is kind of whenever something appears very close to human. So this can be in the form of a doll or one of those really lifelike robots or a mannequin, like I previously mentioned. And it brings up this really strange feeling because it's so similar to what it 
supposed to be, but it does have some small details that are different. So it can cause eeriness and revulsion and just the creeps, basically. There's actually a really controversial and extreme haunted house in someone's backyard, and it actually may have some other locations now, but it, it's called McKamey Manor, and it plays off of the fears of the victims. So if I remember correctly, there's this really long application process, and there there are extensive questions about their background, and there are also a lot of health requirements, so they can't have any heart conditions, which is also true of roller coasters if you think about it, but they more or less live torture these participants. And again, if I remember correctly, it's only one person in at a time. And then this experience lasts for several hours. And it makes me wonder what kind of people are able to work there who are capable of inflicting this level of psychological damage. And then it's in this atmosphere where there's no such thing as a safe word. So even if somebody really truly wants out and this is completely triggering something that was traumatic to them in the past, there's no way to get out until they decide that they're done. There have been so many things done inside of this house and there have been a lot of videos taken afterwards after many papers are signed, but they've cut people's hair. They have made them eat all of these awful things. Um, I think one of the most tame things I heard were rotten eggs. They waterboard people. So there are actual torture methods that they use on prisoners of war that are being used in this haunted house. So it's really scary to think about. And that's obviously a very extreme version of what somebody could do. But then it kind of got off topic there. But another way to control fear is just thinking about things differently. There are a couple of really great examples when it comes to perception and how music can really easily shift the mood. So somebody made a trailer for The Shining, but cut it and changed the music so it looked like a preview for a romantic comedy. And then somebody did something similar to this where they edited clips of the movie Elf with Will Ferrell, and then they also did a separate version of Mrs. Doubtfire, and they made them look like horror movies. I would really recommend you look them up on YouTube because they're pretty genius. So if you're really afraid of something, a way to combat that is to kind of look at it from a funny perspective or to just completely try to to rationalize and explain away what is happening, even if that means going and doing a bunch of research around it. Okay, now the good stuff. So Ouija boards, um, and I'm going to continue to pronounce them Ouija boards, even though it's apparently Ouija, because that's what I've always done. I actually almost got grounded once for using one at a sleepover when my mom found out she's really superstitious about that stuff. It's fairly popular for people to try and communicate with the dead with a Ouija board, but there is something behind the idea of Ouija boards called the ideomotor effect. And this is an unconscious movement and it's guided by your expectations. So if you're sitting in front of a Ouija board and you're trying to communicate with whatever is out there, your hands are likely going to go to the answer that you want to see. So even if it's not intentional, it's still a guiding motion that you may not be aware of that you're performing. And there are obviously those people who move the planchette very consciously in order to mess with someone. 
if your hands are on the planchette and you're moving it around, but you don't feel like you're intentionally moving it and something is guiding you, you're probably thinking that it is a spirit of some sort that is moving your hands, but it's actually the idiomotor effect. And, and this also applies to dowsing rods. Those are those, those sticks that um, people on ghost hunting shows hold in their hands very loosely, and it's almost in a big L shape. So the ends of the rods will typically cross or go to the left or swing to the right. And they use them to ask questions to spirits and um, they will say, if, if you are here with us, move the dowsing rods to the left and then they'll swing to the left. But this is something that has been proven again and again is not accurate. They're holding them loosely in their hands. They don't think they're actually guiding them, but these are very delicate objects. So there were two experiments done about the Ouija board idiomotor effect and in one of the experiments, there were two subjects, and one of them was blindfolded, and the other person wasn't, and they took their hands off of the planchette, so the blindfolded person thought that their hands were st- the other person's hands were still on it. And in this instance, there was an increased number of correct answers. So this one was kind of hokey, and I'm really not sure of the credibility of the people who were conducting the experiment were, but um, they said it suggested that there might be some sort of second intelligence in the subconscious and it starts to bring out obscure facts and info. There was also a recorded experiment of sorts done for a TV show and they were all blindfolded and there were multiple people sitting around the table and they all had their hands on the planchette, but they weren't landing on anything at all. So they would land on the very corner of the board or they would land in between letters whenever they were trying to spell something out. It was one of those things where because they're, they couldn't visualize where the answer was that they wanted it to land on, it wasn't possible for them to get to it. Despite all of this, I still refuse to own a Ouija board or let anybody else bring one into my house. I guess a piece of this that falls more in line with the actual parapsychology of everything is psychic fraud. So there have been a lot of cases over time. And to start, William James, who is credited as the founder of American psychology, but I wouldn't say that he is because there were probably a lot of women before him doing these same things. But that's another topic for another time. Um, He was really interested in spiritualism and um, kind of disproving anything that was going on with it in that time because it was so hyped up and popular. Hired detectives to see if there was evidence of this woman, Leonora Piper, committing fraud. And she was an incredibly accurate psychic at the time. And they wanted to find out if she was cheating somehow and making money off of this. And... They never caught her. They did all of these things while she was in these trances. And it was found out later down the road that William James's maid was friends with Leonora Piper's maid. And that was likely how Leonora Piper was getting all of this information about this person and little things that were said throughout the day that were brought up in readings. Psychics are actually sitting on a, an industry that is worth $2 billion a year. Um, and some people go for fun and for palm reading after a breakup or if they're wanting some guidance about something, which they can take or leave, but it becomes really harmful whenever somebody who is grieving or is 
dealing with something that is very heavy and very psychologically serious because these people prey on their clients and customers knowing that they can get a buck out of them. Um, There are a lot of different methods that they use and some of them rely more heavily on, on some of these than others. But the two main types of readings um, are cold and hot. So a cold reading would be like when they use context clues to create these high probability guesses. So if somebody comes in and they're wearing a wedding ring, and then this psychic of sorts can swoop in and start to talk about things related to a partner and this person feeds into it if they already believe in these abilities. So then a hot reading is when a psychic gathers info ahead of time from social media or ancestry sites. And this can happen whenever people book in advance and leave their first and last names. And it's so easy now to just hop on the internet and Google someone and find out small tidbits about their lives that they then can bring into the readings and create some fake validity out of it. There's also something called a muscle reading, and this is when um, the whole of client's hand during um, a sitting or a reading, and even if the client is completely quiet, they pick up on the small muscular reactions that the clients have. So it almost confirms or denies whatever sort of random information that they're putting out there. They also fish for information. And then shotgunning is when they quickly rattle through a ton of information until something sticks. So if there is a group reading being done and the so-called psychic is in the room and they start saying, who has an M name? And they start rattling off different M names and they say they don't have to be passed on. It could be someone in the physical world. Chances are that if you're doing a group reading, somebody in the room is going to know someone with an M name and that person is either going to be alive or has passed on. Misdirection comes in and they will offer excuses when they're wrong and then try to bring humor in to distract. So if they're completely off base, they'll make a joke about it and then kind of lighten the situation and then completely move on and pretend it didn't happen. Some of them will also ask questions and then confirm and elaborate. If they're seeing a certain image of something and it's incorrect and it doesn't apply to the person or the situation at all, then they'll automatically say it's a symbol for something. So if they're seeing a a white bird and they're like, does this mean anything to you? Then the person that they're doing a reading with, if they say no... Like, oh, this is just a symbol to say that in the next life, this person is is at peace and they're watching over you. So once they learn one piece of information, they then offer a very broad and big message from the deceased person that pertains to it. They'll state very common things that can be really emotional for someone who has just lost someone. So this is when the the grossness of that industry comes into play because somebody has just lost their sister and you mentioned something that might even slightly pertain to that person's life, you're going to get a response out of it. This person is going to start crying. This person is going to start 
their outward grieving process. It's not okay to do this to people who are clearly in pain and then to make money off of it. And then with this, there's something called the Barnum effect. And this is when people begin to feel an emotional or personal connection with very general information, like I mentioned before. Um, And this actually applies to horoscopes as well. So people who believe in psychic abilities will draw connections between very broad and leading, leading questions because they want to believe it. And then confirmation bias is involved in this because it dismisses mistakes. Um, And then they're surprised when then one out of 10 things is correct or even close to correct. There's a method that I've seen used where one of them will scribble on a pad of paper for an extended period of time and then say that that is the way that the spirits talk through them or communicate with them. And this is actually a technique to to have more time to come up with something. So if they're stuck on something to say or stuck on some random revelation to put forth, they'll sit there and scribble on the paper for a while and then pretend that something profound is happening. Harry Houdini is actually somebody who was a was very outwardly against any of this supernatural seance psychic stuff. He set out to disprove a lot of people and did so publicly because he lost his mother who he was very close to and he wanted to try and communicate with her and was really hurt and annoyed and disgusted by these people who were making money off of completely lying to his face. So there's also somebody who's a bit more recent and um, he goes by kind of a stage name of The Amazing Randy, and he exposed quite a few people on national TV for being frauds, which I can't even imagine the type of devastation that had to their careers or the type of embarrassment and shame that they felt while they were on these talk shows and had all of this blow up on their faces. But um, for the last several decades, he's had this check that is for whatever giant dollar amount And he's never written a name in. So he has this contest that anyone can enter. And if they can prove to him that whatever ability they have is real in a lab sort of setting, then he will gladly hand over the check. And this contest has been going on since the 70s, I believe. But no one has ever won the money. And he has has increased it over the years. And I think... As of the last time I checked, it was up to a million dollars. So if anyone wants to enter that contest, uh, go for it. Something really interesting as far as perception goes that can kind of be perceived as creepy um, are faces. And our brains try to make sense of what is unrecognizable. And so this kind of leads to seeing faces, which can be anything from, I think on there, there was a show where... They jokingly talked about this, and it was the face of Jesus in a grilled cheese. And there have been things like that or like on a piece of toast that have sold on eBay for thousands and thousands of dollars because people see these things as a religious symbol. But it's just our brains taking random shapes and forming them together to try and make something out of them so things aren't as ambiguous. 
This is a psychological phenomenon called pareidolia, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Our brains respond to a stimulus, an image or a sound by perceiving a familiar pattern where none exists. So this actually also applies to subliminal messages. And there is that Led Zeppelin song. Um, and a lot of people have said that when it's played backwards, it has satanic messages in it. And this is actually an example of that. And it also uses top-down processing. So if someone were to not know this reference at all and somebody told them and played it back for, backwards for them, they might not even understand or make words from what is happening. But once they know what they're supposed to hear and then it gets played back again, then they recognize those words and then try and make sense of it. Hey, thanks for listening. Uh, as for future episodes, I'm always open to suggestions for topics. Definitely open to any feedback. I'm still trying to solidify the exact direction I'm going with this. I hope to start up some interviews sometime soon and start talking to professionals in the psychology industry or even just talking with people who experience mental illness. I'm really interested in working in the trauma field and just kind of helping people who experience trauma. A big motivator for this podcast is actually to have something extra to put on my grad school applications. So if you're brought here because I applied to the school you work at, I'd really love to get my doctorate and I'd really love to work with you. On a side note, I believe in educational accessibility that may not be readily available due to societal barriers. So if there's something you want to learn about, let me know and I'll look into it for you. I fully recognize my privilege that I am educated and I'm continuing my education and I have so many amazing resources and so many amazing mentors and access to textbooks that I'm more than willing to share with you. So anything at all that you want to send over, you can go ahead and email it to psych401podcast at gmail.com. Another disclaimer that I am new to this and I'm still learning and it has been an ongoing process. And throughout this, I've had to re-record several bits and pieces. So there might be some inconsistencies in volume or background noise or whatever. So just bear with me. Hopefully it'll get better as the episodes go on. Also, I'm sorry if you can hear meowing in the background. My cat doesn't understand the concept of doors. That being said, I wanted to take a second to thank my friend Jameson for kind of guiding me through this and giving me some pointers. Um, he's been podcasting for a while now, and his podcast is called Godspeed. If you want to go ahead and give it a listen, I'll also link that in the show notes. The cover art is by my friend and amazing artist, Ian Wortham. Thanks to Hannah Foster, who recommended the book Ghostland, where I learned about a lot of the societal factors that have contributed to the way we think about paranormal phenomena. And thanks to my partner, Tyler, for letting me turn our dining room into my studio.